Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the new weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week, we'll be joined by guests from the industry to discuss the week in news. I'm Ellie Duncan, Features Editor of FT Advisor and Financial Advisor. Joining me today is Martin Bamford, a Chartered Financial Planner at Informed Choice and seasoned podcaster. Welcome, Martin, and thank you for joining me for the first in the new series of podcasts from FT Advisor. I should say Happy New Year, of course. Happy New Year to you as well, Ellie. Well, let's get straight into it. Our page two story in this week's issue of Financial Advisor is about the MIFID II cost disclosure rules and the fact advisors are going to have to start telling clients exactly how much in costs and charges they're paying. So while MIFID II disclosure rules came into effect in January last year, it's only now that advisors will have to give actual figures rather than estimates. Martin, I know it's something you feel quite strongly about because you're quoted in our story in Financial Advisor, which was written by reporter Rachel Addison, and you're quoted as saying it's an extra administrative burden. So is this something you think is going to be a burden for advisors then? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm, I'm a big fan of disclosure and cost disclosure. Um, I think the Retail Distribution Review was probably, back in the end of 2012, probably the biggest single improvement to financial services regulation in the UK. But MIFID too, um, I'm just, I, I hate it. I hate it to pieces. I don't think the additional workload that comes out of MIFID two for advisors has any real value for clients over and above the type of cost disclosure we were already doing and good advisors were already doing for their clients. Um, the prescribed format that we have to um, produce those disclosures in and the way in which we have to try and gather that information from you know, disparate sources, a number of different uh, platforms for each client, is just going to make it a real headache, particularly for our administration team. And it's going to divert their focus. It's going to take their time and their energy away from actually doing what they should be doing, which is helping us to deliver a good service for our clients. And is this something that you think the advice community as a whole shares? You know, Do they share that view um, with you? Um, I don't think I've ever met anyone in the advice community who likes uh, cost disclosure rules from MIFID II. Um, I, I think that's a pretty commonly held view. Um, I, I'm not convinced everyone in the advice community has yet sort of fully got their head around what's involved, the work involved, and how they're going to approach it at a firm level. Um, a lot of us, I think, are, are reliant still on the data we're going to get from different platforms. And of course, the RAP platforms at the moment are having their own nightmare over time, a lot of them, when it's going through replatforming processes, exercises, which are not in all cases going particularly smoothly. And now, of course, we're expecting them to produce data for us as the basis for these cost disclosures. For those advisor firms that perhaps don't feel prepared, what can they do then at this stage, do you think? Um, I think, yeah, don't panic, obviously, is the starting point. Um, I think it's important to understand what they have to disclose and who they have to disclose it for, because, of course, MIFID II doesn't apply to all client assets. It's only on certain assets we're having to disclose uh, costs. But probably a good business practice is if you're going to disclose on you know, one set of clients, one set of investment assets, is to put a system in place that will help you do it for all assets if possible. Um, but understand the rules, understand where you're going to get that data from, and also the timing. So there's a bit of leeway, I believe, around the timing of this uh, cost disclosure. You know, whilst it's coming into, into force now, it is a year on from when the assets were first invested. So um, that, won't, that won't mean every client has to have their cost disclosure in January, for example. Um, but yeah, really just a case of, of making a plan and understanding what you're going to do. And what do you think clients' reactions is going, are going to be? Because they'll have already had an estimate, won't they? So presumably the actual figure shouldn't be too far from that. 
Yeah, I think I think the estimates and the actual figures, I mean, there may be a bit of difference depending on different values in the portfolios and how accurate the estimates were at the time they were made. Um, you know, clients, in our experience, re- react positively to cost disclosure, to seeing in pounds and pence how much they're paying for different elements of service. I think from an advisor perspective, this comes down to communication. So it's making sure we communicate our value really clearly. Um, there's, there's often, I think, in financial services, a really big focus on cost at the expense of value. Um, and cost is important, clearly, and it's important we don't pay too much for a service. But in the absence of a value debate, a value discussion, I think cost is fairly meaningless. So I think advisors are going to be wanting to make sure they, they explain in detail to clients, alongside that cost disclosure, what the client actually gets for their money. Because, of course, we do so much and we add so much value for each of our clients' lives. But if you just show them cost in pounds and pence, they may not remember that value. Um, you really do need to point it out. So in many ways, it could actually help that advisor-client relationship by just providing a bit more transparency then, do you think? I think so. And I I view any regulatory change as an opportunity, really, to enhance the client relationship and and just really um, prompt us to get better at how we communicate with our clients, how we disclose things, how we position our services and the value of our services. So um, whilst I'm not a fan of MIFID 2 and particularly the cost disclosure rules, there's other bits of MIFID 2 I don't like either, but particularly the cost (laughs) disclosure rules, um, I've got to say any, any regulatory change, we just have to look for the positives and the negatives and make the most of it. Now, one of the biggest stories for the financial advice industry last year was pension transfers. I think it's fair to say uh, this story came to light thanks to the British steel workers. Um, but Martin, can you explain, first of all, why this was such a big story last year, please, for those who perhaps were living under a stone and, and didn't quite manage to uh, read up about it? Yeah, I mean, you're quite right. British Steel was really the focus of that. Um, It was a scandal. You know, there was a great deal of mis-selling around defined benefit pension transfers. People were seeing huge cash equivalent transfer values being offered by their pension schemes. And uh, advisors, unscrupulous advisors in many cases, were taking advantage, I think, of members of that pension scheme and others. And um, I guess making unsuitable recommendations to move them into pensions, uh, move them into investments that weren't suitable for them. Uh, People lost a lot of money. People lost guaranteed incomes that they would have been much better off having. Um, And I think the the whole storm really around British Steel is what brought the issue of defined benefit pension transfers to to the fore. And that, of course, was followed up by a a big sort of regulatory uh, investigation, the FCA, really scrutinising what took place. Um, It also went as far as Parliament. You know, we had a parliamentary select committee look at it. Um, And we every IFA now that's been active in defined benefit pension transfers since pension freedoms were introduced has had to complete an FCA survey on the on the issue with some being selected for a follow up survey. So um, the FCA, the regulator, is definitely taking a really keen interest. But this hit the national press. You know, this was on on every news outlet out there and it became a real consumer finance issue. It certainly did. Um, And it's something that we've tried to follow. Uh, Our pensions reporter, Maria Espadina, of course, has been following it really closely on FT Advisor and Financial Advisor. Um, But it looks like something that's set to run this year as as well. Um, I mean, what can we expect from the FCA this year? Are there going to be any more sort of announcements from, from them, do you think? 
I think so. As, as I mentioned, the uh, the survey that advisors had to complete in December, um, I'm aware of a number of IFAs now who have um, been selected for a follow-up survey. So the FDA asking for additional information that wasn't covered in that first survey. I've no doubt at all the FDA is going to use the data they gathered in that survey to start really targeting further regulatory reviews and then probably enforcement action for firms that yeah, weren't up to the right standard. Um, it, it doesn't stop. You know, nothing has fundamentally changed since the British Steel debacle. We've still got unscrupulous uh, um, advisors using contingent charging, using factory gating to you know, identify their targets and to recommend unsuitable investments. So whilst the FCA has shut down and taken away authority and permissions from some IFAs involved in that, I've no doubt there's a few more out there. It, it, I think it's important to say at that point, you know, the majority of financial advisors who are giving advice around defined benefit pension transfers are doing it well. Um, the, the headlines we see around 50% of cases being judged unsuitable or unclear, the, the FCA was really picking on the firms that already had suspicions about that. That wasn't the whole market we were looking at. So this is a few bad apples um, really you know, damaging people's lives, their financial lives, and making very bad headlines for the whole of, the whole of our sector. The contingent charging actually is is another of our stories in this week's mm. uh, financial advisor. So the Work and Pensions Committee has launched an inquiry into contingent charging on defined benefit transfers. Can you just explain sort of why that's a problem for anyone who doesn't quite understand what this all means? Because there's quite a bit of jargon, isn't there, around all of this? There is a little bit, isn't there? Um, so contingent charging, in my mind, is, is commissioned by another name. Uh, it means the advisor's just getting paid if they recommend the person transfers, in this case, transfers a defined benefit pension to a personal pension. And, and that charging structure has to influence the outcome of the advice, in my mind. Um, if you only get paid by making a recommendation to take a cash equivalent transfer value from a defined benefit pension scheme and transfer it to a personal pension, that's the only way the advisor gets paid, then it's going to sway their judgment, it's going to sway their recommendation. Um, a much better way, I think, of charging for advice in this area is to charge a fee that's completely neutral. So the client gets charged the same fee, whether the advice is to retain their benefits in the defined benefit pension scheme or to transfer it. So regardless of what is suitable, the the fee structure doesn't influence that outcome. Now, it's a big, it's, it's open to a big debate, and it's important it's debated well, because um, contingent charging does make financial advice accessible to people who couldn't afford to pay a fee regardless of outcome, because the contingent charge can be paid out of a pension scheme. Um, so I think it's important we do think about accessibility and the advice gap and, and the potential implications of banning contingent charging. But I've no doubt at all, as I said earlier, contingent charging is just another form of commission and it must be influencing outcomes. Um, it's no surprise in my mind that a number of the firms involved in the British Steel unsuitable advice were following that contingent charging model. And we should say that the regulator decided against a ban in October. So do you think um, with the Work and, and Pensions Committee now having launched an inquiry, do you think maybe this, this could move on again and, and we might actually see some action taken here? I think so. I, I mean, it obviously depends on the outcome of that committee and what they, they decide is, is the right way to go. But um, the FCA clearly listens to the Work and Pensions Committee. They take notice, particularly on such an emotive subject as defined benefit pension transfers. So I think if the conclusion they reach is that this is bad for consumers and it needs either banning or some form of tighter regulation, actually the, the, the outcome I would favour is allowing advisors to use contingent charging on defined benefit pension transfers, but making sure those cases were really well scrutinised, maybe a peer review um, before they were signed off, 
just to make sure that it wasn't influencing the outcome of advice. Um, so we'll, we'll see. I think um, I, I'd never say never to a ban, but we could see a different outcome as well. Okay, watch this space then. And uh, finally then, um, another area that is under FCA review is professional indemnity insurance, um, something that is on your mind at the moment, is that right? It is. After spending um, yeah, most of my weekend in the office going through spreadsheets and filling in renewal paperwork, our renewal application form this year was 49 pages long. Um, and it's yeah, it's a killer. If you, if you hear me sort of banging my head against the desk, that's because I'm thinking about RPI insurance renewal. It's, it's always one of those areas where obviously it's a regulatory requirement to have professional indemnity insurance for an advisor, but it feels wasteful in the sense that um, advisors have to have PI insurance in place. They also have to make a significant contribution each year towards the cost of the financial services compensation scheme. And we also have to hold a lot of capital in reserve. So from a consumer protection point of view, there's almost three different elements, each of which are costing us money um, that we have to have in place. But the professional indemnity insurance market feels like it's hardening. And that probably is a result of the defined benefit pension transfer issue and the scandal in that market. So insurers are rightly nervous of future liability. Um, they, a number of professional indemnity insurers have, have withdrawn from the market, some during policy years. So people have had to, IFAs have had to go out there and re-broke their cover um, that they thought they had in place for the rest of the year, and it was currently you know, immediately withdrawn from them. So it is a big issue. I think any IFA involved in the DB market who is renewing their cover this year should set aside a lot of time to make sure they present the best possible risk to their insurer and provide an awful lot of data so the insurer can make their mind up. And what are you hoping will come out of that FCA review then? I think the FCA has to be quite pragmatic around this subject. I think they have to they have to recognise the cost involved. And whilst that's a cost to the IFA firm, you know, the premium for our professional indemnity insurance is going to come out of my bank account in a couple of months' time. It is a cost, direct cost to us, but it's an indirect cost to consumers. So all of those regulatory consumer protections are in place, PI insurance, FSCS levies, capital adequacy they all push up the cost of financial advice and they widen the advice gap. So what I'd like to see from the FCA is an understanding of that issue and really ways to make consumer protection robust, and it needs to be robust, but also really affordable. Great. Thank you very much, Martin, for joining us today. Thanks, Ellie. Do join us at the same time next week for another FT Advisor podcast. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.